कफस उदास है यारों सबास कुछ तो कहो Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SAS Pod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today we welcome to the SASPod my friend and colleague Usha Ayer, Assistant Professor of Film and Media Studies in the Department of Art and Art History at Stanford. Her first monograph, Dancing Women, was just published by Oxford University Press, and she is currently a fellow at the Stanford Humanities Center, where she is working on her second book project. Usha, I'm so excited to have you on. Welcome to the SASPod. How are you? I'm good. I mean, I'm as good as can be in these times, you know, Lalita. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Uh, it's you. really exciting, and I've been following the SAS podcast with great interest because I think it's really wonderful to have these discussions of South Asia from a variety of disciplines. And one of the silver linings through these really tough times is the ability to go on long walks and listen to podcasts such as this one. Thank you. I appreciate that, and and that's a great uh, suggestion to our audience members. Go on a long walk, socially distance, and listen to our and the many other great podcasts that are out there. Um, Usha, let's just dig straight in. The full title of your book is "Dancing Women: Choreographing Corporeal Histories of Hindi Cinema." Can you say a bit more about corporeal histories? Sure. Um... So when I started off, this the book is a kind of extension of my PhD dissertation, um, which was thinking about um, dance in Hindi film, but also more broadly Indian cinema. And while most people, when you say Bollywood anywhere in the world, the first thing they think about are these big budget spectacular song and dance numbers. Um, but there's surprisingly little scholarship on dance in Indian film and popular Indian film, quite generally. And so. I just had this whole field ahead of me to explore, and it took years of sitting with this material, researching, and finding various dancers I wanted to write about, to come up with the the concept or the conceptual framework of corporeal histories, because much of the discussion of the musical number, whether in Hollywood uh, or in popular Indian cinema, there's very rich work on music and dance and film in both of these traditions. Hollywood and Indian cinema are the two. Cinematic traditions that have always had uh, the musical form, uh, but much of that has been along the the analysis has been along ideological lines. So, what does the narrative do, and how does the spectacle of uh, of the song and dance sequence interrupt the narrative? How are women figured in the narrative differently than in the song and dance sequences? How is romance articulated, etc.? But I wanted to move away from that kind of ideological analysis, which makes us think about dancing women as discursive figures, right? What are the ideologies that produce these dancing women on screen? Mm -hmm. And instead, I wanted us to think about the social practices of dancing women. Right. Um, and when we do that, we begin to think about choreography. We think begin to think about experimentation. These women don't just appear on screen in, as these perfect dancing bodies without right. years of training, right? Yeah. 
and weeks of rehearsal then. So when we think, when we shift the focus to labor, to the work required, mm. to training, to virtuosity, they are not mere, um, you know, they're not just fixed in the male gaze as erotic objects, mm. which is the standard way of reading, dancing, performing women more generally, the Hollywood actress, Madeline Monroe, you know, all of, all of these examples that we have in film studies. But if we shift instead to thinking about virtuosity, the amount of training, how difficult it is to be a good comic actress or a great dancer, uh, we then begin to shift our focus to corporeal histories. Um, and these histories then destabilize standard kind of unitary ways of thinking about actresses. Uh, it makes us think about bodies as knowledge, bodies as history, as archives. And because they're, they're constantly in motion through their dancing, you know, they're shaped by ideology. And I think I spend a lot of time thinking about class and caste and gender and sexuality. Um, but they're also moving through and against these structures. Mm. Um, so that when we begin to do this kind of material history, we fundamentally uh, and radically shift our notion and our ways of thinking about bodies. Um, and I also, it's not just the dancing heroine. In, the, in, the, in my PhD dissertation, the chapters were organized uh, by period, but also by certain heroines who were important for each period. And I didn't only pick dancers because they were, uh, it, it wasn't a question of taste. It wasn't a book about who are the greatest dancers in Hindi cinema. It's about which bodies produce interesting thought about what's happening in India and in South Asia during that period. Um, you know, so we're moving away from taste hierarchies into, and that's what corporeal histories help us think about as well. It's the backup dancer. It's Saroj Khan, the choreographer. It's what I call the choreo musicking body, which is all the nameless musicians in the orchestras, the nameless backup dancers who we never get to know intimately in standard histories. How do we write more expansive histories when we write corporeal histories, right? And it's also non-human elements, not just human elements. So it's thinking about the plaster of Paris fluted columns. It's thinking about the ostrich feathers that Helen wears in her <laughs> costume. It's thinking about those carpenters, painters mm. who produce the sets in which people are dancing. Mm. So we just have this pulsating kind of body that produces the film. And that's what allows us to think about labor. When we watch a film, we might watch, say, a five-minute song and dance number and think, oh, that was amazing or that wasn't that great. But when we shift our gaze and when we begin to look at labor, we see a long process that happened behind that dance number, which is, you know, the dance number is maybe five minutes long, but it took weeks and months to rehearse the moves that we see. Right. It took weeks and months to build the sets, to make the costumes. And then even further behind that, we see the years of training that it took each of these professionals to, to bring those talents to the cinema. And then even further, so we're constantly zooming out. We think about, say, for example, classical dance training that some of these actresses in the 30s had from Devadasis and Tavayas. So it becomes a kind of, you know, multi-scalar history um, when we kind of move to corporeality, embodiment, all of these help us bring gender and sexuality very squarely into the histories we tell. That is a fantastic introduction and also a beautiful seg into my second question. And I'm really trying, reading your book, I was really trying to 
um, kind of locate your work in relation to my own. And, and so mm-hmm. just bear with me while I kind of tr- take you, uh, you and, and the audience, bear with me while I kind of take you on the trajectory of, um, of my thinking, which is that in the, in the North Indian performance traditions, we have women who are dancing women, who are dancing women who are performing, who are dancing women who are mostly performing for men. And the male gaze obviously comes into that. And then they're singing while dancing. And so my work has been around how the song texts um, became reinterpreted as quote unquote devotional or even quote unquote religious at the same time as the body was taken out of performance. So uh, I guess my argument is that the body is taken out of the text as the body is taken out of performance. And uh, the courtesan performers start sitting down and not performing abhinaya or acting with their hands and face. And, and that leads the way for reframing these arts as quote unquote classical. And I think it's important to put that in quotes. Um, and then, as you say, many of the former courtesans moved on to acting in film, where it seems a similar trajectory of disembodiment is followed and similar tropes um, of professing quote unquote respectability exist. And so uh, kind of along this ideological, but also historical in some way timeline, do you see your work begin or how does it fit in? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And um, my work is very much in conversation with all of this work, including yours that you're talking about, the right. histories of textualization, of Sanskritization, um, and what you uh, you refer to as Hinduization. Um, uh, but um, I'm also trying to think how the cinema speaks with these traditions of musical and dance performance. Um, so chapter three, which is about the 1930s and 40s, goes mm-hmm. back to the late 19th century, to the anti-notch movement, which is launched in 1882, which tries to, which is a long effort to criminalize traditional dancer lifestyles. And the fundamental reason for that is, um, as Devish Soneji argues, uh, the non-conjugal sexuality of the hereditary dancer. Correct. Right? These women were challenging our sedimented notions even of what heterosexuality of queerness are. Um, These women were often performing elites. They paid the highest taxes in many of the cities that they lived in. Um, So we have these very textured histories of both power and oppression alongside each other. Once again, a corporeal history allows us that nuance of how to tell these stories together. But absolutely, in the same period, the late 19th century, as you know very well, Paluskar, Bhatkande, mm. they are all trying to also textualize uh, the musical traditions. And this, the, the split between the body and the voice is exacerbated because what they're trying to do is separate dance and music. Um, right. And uh, I think in one of these reports, they even say we need to separate the gem from the dirt. The song being the gem and dance being the dirt right. because dance is, is this kind of corporeal expression Matthew Rahim's book on, on musicking bodies mm. does really interesting work where um, he talks about how Paluskar and Bhatkande omit gestural articulation altogether. So they want to sever the voice from the body and every all the performers start employing smaller gestures so that they don't attract atten- attention to the body. Um, and, you know, yes. all of this work on the Tumri and the Kajri, how this textualization of Hindustani uh, quote-unquote classical music and in my book classical is always in quotes. Uh, to yes, problematize. I appreciated that so much. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 
um, because it's the, it's always at the expense of the forms that dancing and performing and singing women were doing. Also, before this period, there isn't a strict separation between dancing and singing. Right. Courtesans would often perform. Some of them would perform sitting down. Others would stand up and dance. Right. And these would be extended performances. You know, everything shifts in the early 20th century. With the gramophone, you have mm -hmm. to shorten the song mm -hmm. uh, with with the stage dance performance, because before that you have performances in courts, in salons, in temples, and these could stretch all night, they could stretch over multiple nights. So the entire temporality of experiencing performing cultures, performance cultures was very different. The 20th century truncates many of these. So by the time they come down to us, uh, they have changed quite a bit. But I also don't want to stick with that tradition modernity model of social change, which just creates binaries of the then and the now. Right. Um, and actually, if we look really closely, there are a lot of conflicting cultural negotiations in this period of the embourgeoisement of both music and dance, right? Making it respectable. Um, so a, a figure like uh, Sadhana Bose is really interesting for me in the 1930s because a, a standard way of telling her story would be that she's a Bhadra Mahila, she's this upper caste, upper class woman, um, learns from, you know, among other people, Uday Shankar, Rabindranath Tagore. But when we look closely at her story, her stardom is also very vulnerable. Um, so these early female pioneers and continuing to this day, continue to have... Um, difficult um, careers, there are challenges constantly in multiple levels. So it's not only a story of Rukmini Devi Arundel versus Bala Saraswati, right. you know, the upper caste woman versus the Devadasi women. What's, I think what we need to tell are more nuanced stories of how caste and class and gender are constantly playing alongside each other, how these women are often co-choreographing these histories. And the, and the earlier figures actually never disappear altogether. It's just that we haven't trained our gaze to look for them. Um, mm -hmm. If we go to the backup dancers and talk about uh, their unions and how they articulate their virtuosity, they no longer remain backup dancers, right? We pull them to the foreground and we tell their stories. Um, so if we pull back the Oriental dancer um, and never losing sight of the power differentials between them, um, we, we tell these stories of, uh, of how their performance, uh, performance gestures, these gestural genealogies haven't disappeared. We need to excavate them and learn to look for them. So I want to get back to this um, Sanskritization process, uh, mm -hmm. but I'm gonna just um, hold off. I like to do this because <laughs> my <laughs> mind goes in so many different directions. So I just, you know, make a little note and we'll get back to it. Um, because you already mentioned Saroj Khan, and I want to ask you about that. Um, so Madhuri Dixit for me was kind of my, my when I first started watching um, Bollywood or Hindi cinema as, as a student of Hindi and South Asia, uh, she was the one. And, and so I've always felt kind of a connection with her because that was my, my entry point into, into film. Um, and I just love the sections of your book about the relationship between Madhuri and Saroj Khan. And it, it struck me uh, that the way you describe their teaching and learning process, which, which feels like a dance in a way, um, the way you describe that, it feels a little revolutionary, like you're lifting the veil on a, like a hereditary secret of knowledge transmission. 
and the sense of equality between the two women in a context where the traditional teachers of dancing women have always been men, at least publicly, it just struck me as radical. Was, was that your intention? Was that where you wanted to go with it? I do hope it was because <laughs> I'm glad you're reading it that way. For me, it was absolutely essential to make Saroj Khan visible as you know the body that is articulating these changes. Um, so yes, absolutely. Multiple things are happening over there. One is the the male uh, the male teacher is again a product of the anti-notch movement, the Sanskritization movement. Um, the Natuvanars in the Sadiratam, the Bharatana, what becomes gentrified as Bharatanatyam tradition, right. only become the more visible figures as a result of this, you know, in the 1930s and 40s, as a lot of scholarship shows us, right. or that shift from Shringara to Bhakti, right. the, which you had asked earlier, and I don't think I quite got to. Um, it, these weren't such binary categories at all. And that women learned, they were hereditary performers and they learned in a community of other women in the Kota, in, in, in the traditional kind of dancing community. So this has become a 20th century kind of figuration of the male guru and the female student. Correct. Um, and, you know, this was true of Hindi cinema as well, where you had male choreographers like Gopi Krishna, Hiralal, Sohanlal, through the 50s and 60s, but I actually show in one of the chapters on Vaijanti Mala and Vahida Rahman that it was Vaijanti Mala's grandmother who brings Hiralal and Sohanlal into the Bombay film industry. So if we dig deeper, there are so many women behind all of these, you know, radical shifts in industrial logics and processes. Um, and Saroj Khan was Sohanlal's assistant. Uh, she started off actually as a backup dancer in the 50s. Um, and her career is just an amazing embodied archive of right. Bombay cinema's practices. Uh, so she starts off as a backup dancer. She becomes an assistant choreographer to Sohan Lal for many years. And then she forks out on her own as a choreographer in the 70s, 74, I think. But it takes another 14 years for her to become visible in the public eye. Uh, and that is with Madhuri Dixit and her collaboration in Tezab, uh, the, the famous song, Ek Do Teen. So I spent quite a bit of time thinking about that song. And again, in its earlier iteration, when I wrote this, I wrote about Madhuri Dixit because she was the visible star, right? And she redefines the heroine's body. I spoke about how her dancing body folds in the vamp and the heroine's body. And mm -hmm. that's why it provoked a lot of censorship battles, especially the Choli Ke Piche Kya Hai Right, of course. Um, so I was trying to understand <coughs> this moment of economic liberalization in India in the 90s through the dancing body of Madhuri Dixit. But spending more time with these dancing figures, thinking about who actually created those gestures that she's enacting took me to uh, Saroj Khan. And I speak in the introduction, I think, about ghost or shadow figures and how we cannot tell these histories only by looking at who is on screen and who is in the foreground. Behind each of these spotlit stars are these shadow figures or ghost figures mm -hmm. who I then kind of reformulate as co-choreographers. They, If you learn to look for them, they don't remain ghost or shadow figures. They are central to these narratives that we're telling, right? So... Um, there are multiple instances, if you remember, in the chapter where 
directors are telling Madhuri Dixit, if you can do even 70% of what Saroj Khan can do, right. it'll be an amazing number. So clearly Saroj Khan is the more virtuosic, skilled dancer, but Madhuri Dixit is, uh, is a great disciple to her. She's a great mimic or doppelganger. And together they produce these new techniques of the body. Right. And so, you know, when we think about training and rehearsal, Saroj Khan sort of becomes the guru um, and not the underpaid choreographer, which she is in that industrial practice. But right. I'm hoping that by telling these stories, we are lifting up this labor of the backup dancer, of the choreographer, the assistant choreographer. Um, and we also then decenter the hero from all of these stories. Because an ideological reading is always about, oh, Madhuri Dikshit is heaving her breasts and shaking her hips because it's meant for the male gaze. And I always felt there was so much else going on there. Why does a feminist spectator like me derive so much pleasure from these dance numbers or from mm -hmm. the item number? It's just too easy to say that only one segment of the audience derives pleasure from these numbers. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I train that feminist gaze, when I tried to find that oppositional reading of, of, the, of to try and understand my own desire and pleasure into these numbers, you can reframe these uh, very salacious, lascivious, product, what I call production numbers as actually intimate dialogues between the women. It's the choreographer, it's Saroj Khan and Madhuri Dikshit, it's Saroj Khan and Sri Devi who are practicing for days, who are figuring out what costume will look the best and will accentuate their moves. The hero in the meanwhile is off practicing with his action director, because he is kind of finessing his action moves. So when we think about these as labor histories, we move away from those heteronormative narratives and the, the actors themselves are also doing very different kinds of work. Um, so we then learn to appreciate how Saroj Khan and Madhuri Dikshit actually developed hook steps, right? A particular body zone is accentuated in each of their numbers. And when I interviewed Madhuri Dikshit, very interestingly, she said, um, Choli Ke Piche Kya Hai is one of her favorite dance numbers that she has done with Saroj Khan because they found, they took such delight. She said she's on one leg and she's shaking, circulating her other leg up in her skirt. Uh -huh. um, and she said it took a lot of practice to get that right. So they are delighting, you know, in, in their virtuosity and how they're able to, to do these steps and they're innovating and producing a new step in each song. They take great pride in these numbers. They're not ashamed of them at all. They don't read them in these kind of traditional ways, binary ways of reading their bodies. So uh, for me, there's a lot to take away from there, right? We think about techniques, not just transmitted from one person to another, not just from Saroj Khan to Madhuri Dikshit, but it's actually techniques circulating between bodies uh, so that we create, we begin to kind of animate circuits of um, creative labor between women. And that's what produces this kind of network of remarkable women who are collaborating together rather than competing for some, you know, abstract male gaze. Right. Thank you. And I just, I, I, I love all of your work, but this, this particularly spoke to me. Um, and I mm -hmm. thank you for um, talking more about it. 
Um, so thank you also for talking about virtuosity, because in my work on, on genres that are deemed as semi-classical, there's always this argument that uh, these more traditional courtesan genres like Tumri and Kadri are less uh, require less virtuosity and therefore are called semi-classical and mm -hmm. Rao has also written on that I mean for me that is just it's all about gender there's nothing else I'm so glad you're bringing that the the, um, the notion of virtuosity back into this discussion of um, female performers mm -hmm. um, and then the lack of the binary so the lack of nuance so that brings us back then to this process or these processes of Sanskritization, which I and others, um, and you referred to earlier, have also called Hinduization. Um, so these these processes of of take uh, for me taking out the nuance, uh, but disambiguating. Uh, so it's either uh, this or that. Uh, it's either bhakti or not. Um, I see those processes as really an integral part of the history of quote unquote classical music. But they seem more pertinent than ever, um, or they still seem very pertinent, you know, right now in the current moment. So do you see your book as political and by political, I mean, relevant to the current political moment? Mm -hmm. um, I, I would hope so. Uh, and there is a way, of course, in which all work is political, but sure. I think particularly questions of culture are always the ground on which politics plays out. Um, again, there isn't a binary there, and we've been seeing that in South Asia. Um, the, the political is, is kind of, um, is built on the cultural, and that cultural battle has been fought for a while now. Um, and censorship of women's bodies and movement is so central to this across the world. Wherever you're seeing the rise of fascism, uh, almost always heteropatriarchal fascism, mm -hmm. um, it, it is through often the, the policing of women's bodies. Um, the censor board in India in recent years is an example of that, of, uh, of narrowing the kinds of stories that can be told, um, right? The, the, um, the kinds of stories that would fit in with a new kind of um, re revisionist notion of what Indian history is. Uh, so Indian historical films right now are really interesting to study for, for, for the kind of political messaging that they are serving. Um, and the attacks on filmmakers, on actors, directors, uh, all of that uh, that we have been witnessing, especially in the past few months, are speaking to this there's also additionally the self-censorship on the kinds of stories one can tell uh, in this current political moment. Um, but as always, I'm forcing myself to see both sides or all the sides rather than both because that remains <laughs> in the binary. Um, because I think there is a very vibrant cultural scene happening as well. So I'm thinking of films like Anarkali of Ara, which has such an interesting female courtesan dancer protagonist uh, at the heart of it, who is articulating her agency, um, whether it's in terms of public performance, sex work, etc. cetera, um, or, or Madhuri Dixit, a, a, an actor who is, you know, considered a little conservative in her choice of, in, especially in her public articulations of her choices, but she's working in films like Dedishkia. She's doing item numbers, which itself is really interesting because she is the one of the progenitors of that form, um, you know, so she is in her 50s and doing item numbers. She acts in a film like Dedishkia, which is a sort of reworking of Ismat Chukta's Lihaf or The Quilt. 
mm-hmm. uh, but this time through dance um so these kind of uh queer narratives around dance um these these narratives of women taking back their stories are all proliferating right now so we're not once again we're not served well only by unitary narratives you know think about the bar dancers steady fight against moral policing yeah. so this is not just on screen but it's off screen there are all of these narratives uh, there are these um fights that we can join and support and so things are definitely very grim uh, but hopefully all our bodies are resisting in multiple forms and uh, we can look to these female performers public female performers on and off screen um for inspiration to to continue these challenges against you know against the the heteropatriarchal fascism that we are surrounded by we i think we have a call to action here on the on the sas part so <laughs> thank you i'm not sure we've had those before but yes <laughs> uh, and and may we have many many more uh female performers in their 50s doing item numbers or or yes. whatever <laughs> they choose to do it's <laughs> we support that um Now uh listen uh, in addition to the book uh, there's also this uh, phenomenal website it comes along with the book and just looking at the website and the videos on the website I just <laughs> um got a little dizzy imagining the copyright and technological issues that must have preceded its creation like it's a very neat uh, little website and uh having worked with um some of a uh, kind of trying to publish co-publish a written and oral uh a work it's uh, it's complicated so how important to you was it that the website should accompany the book and and how big were the obstacles really i'm so glad you enjoyed the website <laughs> yes it's it's amazing um, yeah it was one of the main reasons uh it, in my for my choosing of um, Oxford University Press um for publishing this book because they have published other books on dance um that have accompanying websites so if you're writing about dance which is predicated on movement and if i'm arguing for corporeal histories i want my readers to actually be able to see and feel these dance numbers um alongside the reading um so to shift from a purely textual kind of uh reading of these histories uh, to experience the kinesthetic pleasures of these dance numbers it was absolutely essential that we watch the numbers as we read and we constantly move back and forth with, between these modalities of engaging with um with dance um so the the website was they have the format so what i had to do was actually edit down numbers and find those the particular clips that speak most pithily because as you said there were copyright issues and so you're allowed only a certain duration of uh-huh. of a clip you can't put the whole song up um i think you're allowed up to 90 seconds um, okay that's think, not too bad then okay it's not yeah uh, and then because my background is in filmmaking and video production and television many decades ago uh, but i'm not afraid of technology um and <laughs> and a really exciting new mode of doing film criticism is through videographic essays um so video essays which really would be the best form of uh, of analyzing dance uh, in fact but this allowed me to do something in between which is you know get the clips um and trim them down to to show just exactly the movements that i want to alongside the reading 
That's, it's fantastic. I, I recommend, well, I'm sure people will. Uh, and it's very neatly marked in the book, you know, where to go to. And the website is incredibly clear. So it's it's all super user friendly. And thank you to you and OUP, I guess, uh, for making it so. Because if you're like me, when I'm reading a book, I'm constantly going to YouTube to look for whatever is being discussed or to Google images, you know, yeah. so you're, constantly doing this transmedial work anyway so why not just make it easier and provide it yes <laughs> wonderful uh, we don't have a ton of time but I do want to ask you about uh, the current book project so um yeah tell us <laughs> what's next so in a way I think of it as an extension but it's also very different than the first book um, so in 2014, uh, my first tenure track job was at the University of the West Indies in Trinidad. Um, oh, okay. And I have never gotten over that experience and I've been dying to go back. And part of it is because I was just struck by the long presence of Hindi cinema, Indian cinema, but mainly Hindi cinema in yes. the Caribbean, yes. which I knew of theoretically. I mean, I knew about it, but you know, until I was there, I didn't quite realize um, and so I and I taught an Indian cinema course in the film program where I was working. Um, and my students in the Caribbean knew these songs, but they also knew of other histories of these songs. So I showed them the 2008 film Om Shanti Om with Shah Rukh Khan in it, which derives its title and the title song Om Shanti Om from uh, a 1980 film, Kars. And that's what I knew about it. But they alerted me to the fact that Om Shanti Om was actually a soca song by Lord Shorty, who invented the form of the soca or soul calypso. And my mind was just blown about these erased histories of not knowing that, you know, behind this very, very famous Hindi film song was a Trinidadian soca number. Um, and so that started me off um, kind of really deeply interested in studying the histories of Indian cinema in the Caribbean. And, and, and particularly in the countries that have a big uh, substantial Indo-Caribbean population, uh, which is Trinidad, uh, Suriname and Guyana, right. especially Trinidad and Guyana. Uh, so that's what the next project is going to be about, but it's not just about the influence or the presence of Indian cinema in those countries, but it's, which creates very much a binary of homeland and diaspora. Right. But it's about also the influence of Caribbean cultural forms on Hindi, on popular Indian cinema. I'm sure I'll find, I'm in the very early stages. So I don't know where, what journey this will take me on in the coming years, but I'm hoping to turn to Bhojpuri cinema, to the figure of the Madrasi in the Caribbean, which refers to, uh, South Indian indentured laborers, uh, but also colorism across India and the Caribbean. And then what, um, what kinds of cultural memory do Afro-Caribbean uh, peoples hold uh, of Indian cinema? So when I was there, I found that the, the, the fondness uh, for Indian cinema wasn't just among Indo-Caribbean people. It was also Afro-Caribbean people who'd grown up on a steady diet of Amitabh Bachchan, Amir <laughs> Khan, Shah Rukh Khan. And they know the songs, you know, they care as much about these stories. Um, so we've always been told that Hollywood is the one big global cinema. And I want to kind of discuss how Indian cinema has had a huge global presence since the 1930s. And hopefully that will tell us different kinds of stories of globalization instead of just the kind of, you know, um, the story of um, Euro-American hegemony over our cultural lives. 
how can we tell stories across the global south um, is really the fundamental question that I'm asking with this uh, new book project. I'm I I can't wait to read more and to start seeing the uh, the, the the drafts of articles or whatever or you're working on. Uh, we, we know that we share a love of soca, um, and I uh, I'm, I'm very excited to hear more about your project. And then maybe when you're further on, you can come back on the SASPOD and update us all on where you're where things stand with it. I would love that. For now, we will leave it here. Usha, thank you so much for talking to me today about your work. Thanks so much for having me on, Lalita, and thanks for all the work all of you do on the SAS podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, that's a great seg into me also wanting to thank Soham Shiva for creating the beautiful music for the intro and outro, and Alina Utrata for doing the post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. Jokuya, the 